Welcome to the Complete Sinner's Guide. This is a podcast, a radio show about biblical theology. My name is Noah Chalad. Delighted to be here with you this evening. Joining me is my co-host, as always, Tyler Fowler. Tyler, welcome to the program. What's going on, buddy? How you doing tonight? I am so excited for this debate that we have coming up tonight. So, a little bit of backstory. You make friends with a lot of very intelligent, uh, very God-fearing Christian people who want to learn more about theology, want to learn more about what God's Word says, and you've invited them onto the program tonight to host the debate, to find out and ask the question, why do you believe what you believe? Tell us a little bit about what's coming up tonight, Tyler. Exactly. So what we've got tonight is my two friends, Michael Keaton, David Pullman, have agreed to come on the show and to sit down and to discuss um, some differences that they have. They are brothers in Christ. Uh, they would view each other as brothers in Christ. And I will give them the opportunity to introduce ourselves here in just a second. Uh, but to start out, we are going to have a debate slash dialogue. Um, we're going to start out with two 15-minute opening statements uh, from the two participants. And then we're going to move into 10-minute rebuttals. And then after that, we're go- we'll, we'll take a break, and then we will come back and have just an open discussion. It'll be a little bit more informal. So for everyone who's listening um, who's not familiar with this type of structured debate, uh, think of maybe a presidential debate, only a little bit more uh, not scripted, <laughs> so to say. Um, so with that, let me turn the, uh, turn the mic over to... One of my, man, we've been through so much. Michael Keaton, brother, tell the people a little bit about yourself uh, and what exactly it is that you believe, what you will be proposing and defending tonight, and just what's up, man? How you doing? Hey, I'm doing well, brother. And, you know, as always, I appreciate you uh, for the opportunity that you've given me and just for being such a thinker and a truth seeker, uh, you're a real inspiration to me and a great friend. I thank you and Noah both for, for just being willing to host this, and obviously David as a, my fellow interlocutor there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm basically just on Facebook. That's basically my only online presence, really. I have a Twitter account, but I don't do much with it. But I'm Michael Chandler Keaton on Facebook, uh, and you'll see some biographical information about me there. Uh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And when I say sinner, I mean sinner of the worst kind. Uh, drug addict, fornicator, uh, the worst of the worst. And just to be saved by God's grace is just, for me, uh, that is the crux of my entire life. That's the focal point of my entire life was I once was someone else and now I'm a new creation. And uh, for me, what I'll be representing tonight is which view does Scripture present? Is it Calvinism or is it Arminianism? And for me, knowing that I'm saved by the grace of God, caused me to, to, to dive into that deeper. And when I did, I realized God is far more sovereign than I even knew when I was saved. And so I owe everything to Him. And the question becomes not the individual bits of doctrine, but how do we get there? And so I'll be presenting a position that if we understand God as He's revealed Himself and we study the nature that He's revealed to us, I believe that that leads to uh, a monergistic position like Calvinism and uh, for His glory uh, by counsel of His own will. Yeah, absolutely, man. I... See, and that's why, Michael, you and I relate, because I have the background of a drug addict, you know, fornicator. Whenever I moved to Pensacola, Florida, whenever I was 18, you know, I I went wild, dude. Like, that was my rebellion, right, whenever I I had to be in a rock band, and I had to do all the things that everybody else was doing, right? And at that time, down there, it was sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? So that that's my that that's my background as well and i think that's why we connect so well mike is because of that 
you know, one, not, but not only that, dude. And and this is the this is so sweet about Christianity. If you're just tuning in, we are getting ready to have a debate between two two brothers in Christ. But this this is really for everyone. And and at the end of the day, yes, we are debating. But at the end of the day, we but we all all of us here at the Complete Sinner's Guide agree on one thing, and, and the main thing, and that is Christ died for sinners. And if you trust Christ, if you believe in Christ, all of us, please, we plead with you, trust him, believe in him, have faith in him. Um, and, and not only will you be forgiven, you'll have eternal life. And it's just, it's it's a life-changing thing. Um, with that, though, I want to go ahead and, and introduce the, the other participant, David Palman, man. What's up, brother? Like, tell, tell, a little, tell us a little bit about yourself, man, for people who don't know you and and what what it is that you're about, man? What where do you differ with Michael at specifically, and where would you say that you guys agree? Just in a little introduction. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, as you said, my name is David Pullman, and uh, I'm a classical Arminian member of the Society of Evangelical Arminians. Uh, recently joined there, and uh, Arminianism is. I like to describe it as exactly what you would expect if the statement God is love is true. Uh, I was not always an Arminian. I, I was never a Calvinist, but uh, I was kind of, I, I held points of both camps, uh, kind of in inconsistency just in the denomination I was raised in. And uh, ultimately, you know, had to come to grips with scripture, uh, largely like as I was getting into my early years in college and such. Uh, and yeah, so uh, there is a lot that I would agree with uh, with Michael. Arminians and Calvinists have much in common and, and even more, I think, than is often uh, acknowledged because they're sometimes thought of as polar opposites. And that's really not the case. Uh, if we lay out the full right. spectrum, uh, Arminianism and Calvinism, they're right next to each other on the spectrum. Uh, if you if you put Calvinism like on one end, uh, the other extreme from that is going to be Pelagianism. And from there, you're going to have like semi-Pelagianism. From there, you'll have uh, maybe some kind of provisionism like a latent flowers would hold. And then you're going to have Arminianism and after that, Calvinism. Uh, and Because we would agree with Calvinists on things like total depravity. Uh, and I know Michael would challenge that we could consistently hold to that. But uh, nonetheless, I think it is perfectly consistent to say that we do believe in uh, that man can't believe in Christ unless God takes that first step. Uh, but where I think we really differ is on that second point of the tulip, uh, unconditional election. And uh, I think that is that's the crux of the debate. And uh, since Calvinists generally agree that the five points kind of hold together, I think if the U falls, then the rest of it falls. And so uh, that's where the disagreement comes in. But in terms of uh, just understanding our anthropology is going to be very similar. Uh, even our view of God is uh, that he is completely sovereign. And again, Michael might want to give pushback on that as we get into that. But uh, I would want to emphasize that that is also something that uh, at least true Arminians will want to emphasize. Absolutely, man. And thank you guys again, both of you guys, for taking the time out to do this. I know that you, you guys have tried to have a debate or two in the past. Things didn't quite work out. So hopefully things, they seem to be rolling pretty smooth now. Let's let's see if it, it keeps going that way. Um, but I let's, so if you guys are just tuning in, um, we've got Michael Keaton, David Pullman, and we are going to be discussing some differences within uh, Christianity tonight. Uh, a lot of similarities, as you just heard David say, um, but there are some different differences as well. 
So what I want to kind of do now is to kind of transition into the debate, the formalities at least. Um, we'll have two 15-minute opening statements. Michael will go first, and then David will follow. And then after that, we'll have two 10-minute rebuttals where what, whatever they've said in the uh, beginning will be challenged um, on certain aspects and different things like that. Um, so that's what will happen then. Michael, again, will go first. David will follow up. Then we'll take a little bit of, little bit of a break because we'll probably be close to the top of the hour by then. And since we are live, uh, we, we have to kind of go by the radio. So with that being said, um, Michael, if you want to go ahead, man, and give your opening statement, um, a- a- after this, like I said real quick, um, we'll be getting into some more kind of an informal open discussion. I won't be playing moderator as much. I mean, I still will. We're going to stay on track or try to. This is such a broad, broad topic. Um, but I think it's a very important one. And, and again, like I said, I'm so thankful that these guys have sat down uh, to do this. Real quick, man, my co-host Noah, is there anything you want to say um, before we get into uh, Michael's opening statement? I guess I would just add that um, it's a real pleasure to have discussions with people who don't get, let their egos get in the way of the discussion. The, yes. the reality is, I mean, and, and this is something I think that we're kind of trained as human beings to do is to not give up ground. And so when you believe that you're right about something, it becomes almost more about defending the brand than it does trying to discover truth. And yep. what I've seen um, in, in my discussions with both yourself and David and Michael is that all of us have this desire to have truth revealed and have truth discovered from within God's word. And so whatever God's word says, whatever God wants us to understand about him and his holiness and the best way for us to live our lives in, in fulfillment with his plan, that's what we're all committed to. And the fact that everybody here shares that view makes having these kinds of debates very worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly why I chose, you know, you two, uh, just to be honest, is that not, I mean, yes, we are all human. Yes, we all stab at each other and especially brothers, you know, sibling rivalries, they they happen. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, you guys are so cool and and just so down to earth and chill at the end of the day that I I really appreciate it. And I respect both of you um, as brothers in Christ and as, you know, partners in studying and trying to find truth. Um, I really appreciate that. So, so with that being said, thank you, Noah and Michael. Man, let's get into it, brother. Why, why, man? Why do you believe what you believe? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm, we mentioned a little biographical information earlier. Uh, of course, in my opening statement, I don't want to drown it out with uh, too much biological bi- biographical information. But there is a, a, a couple of things that I do believe that are are pertinent to this discussion tonight about me. And that is that I've not always been a Calvinist. Uh, in fact, I used to be a staunch and virulent anti-Calvinist. I wasn't as gracious as some brothers are. I wasn't as gracious as David. Uh, I didn't affirm Calvinists, frankly, for a period of my life as brothers in Christ, because to me, they were bringing a different gospel. They were anathema. I believe that, uh, that they were impugning the character of God with this theology that they were pushing for. So I really despise Calvinism. And so what I want to do tonight is I believe we can all agree that there have been so many debates uh, between Calvinists and Arminians. And so rather than just dive into why I believe this point or why I believe that point, uh, I would rather just kind of launch into 
uh, the hermeneutical foundation. Why do I believe that a verse uh, is likely, more likely to be saying this than something else? Well, I believe that is grounded in the character and nature of God. And that's what I'd like to focus on. And there's a particular people, I hope that, that anyone listening can be edified by this discussion tonight. There's a particular people that I'm really shooting to influence tonight. And, the, and those are the people that were like me, that uh, were just shocked by the conclusions we saw of Calvinism, because I think that happens to so many of us. We, we, we kind of have this really insular Christian education, I think, especially in North America. We're sort of inured to these ideas, even before we become Christians, that, that kind of, kind of we, we, we experience via uh, osmosis. We always hear, you know, Jesus loves everyone in this special way, and God desires everyone to be saved. So we approach Scripture with that already as a foundation for us. That's already something that we believe is crucial to Christianity. And so we even approach Scripture with that in mind. And so when we hear, when we, when we hear the conclusions of Calvinist doctrines, of course they're going to sound terrible to us, because it sounds just to totally contravene everything that we know about God. And so the people that I really would love to, 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 to make an impact on tonight are those that may be listening who, who are not as gracious as David, who, who generally don't want to affirm they may not go as far as to say I don't affirm Calvinists as brothers, but who feel that Calvinism turns God into a monster, and Calvinism makes men robots, and, and there's just no way you can read the Bible and come away a Calvinist. Uh, if I could have anyone to hear me speak tonight and walk away thinking, well, I still, maybe even they say I still don't agree with Calvinism, but I can at least understand how someone can read Scripture and see Calvinism there. If I can do that, I'll feel like it's a job well done. And so to go back to the reason why I felt like I became an anti-Calvinist is because I believe that we hear these things. For instance, these ideas about Christ that must be true. And so even if we don't see them directly via primary text in Scripture, we sort of have them as the foundation. Well, they're there, and because we believe they're there, we almost subconsciously seek to confirm our biases. So we'll take uh, a peripheral verse that seems to mention something and then sort of translate and interpret that in a way that, that kind of flows with our, our hermeneutic and our position on the nature of God. Uh, many synergists, in fact, they'll concede, and, and, and I want to make sure that David understands I'm not directly calling him a synergist because I know he doesn't like that title, uh, but just speaking uh, academically, uh, theological tradition, Arminianism is listed with uh, synergistic uh, positions. And so, but many synergists, they will concede that God is sovereign. Over the universe, the stars, the quasars, and the comets, the heavenly bodies do exactly as the Lord has decreed. They'll concede that uh, the earth, uh, that God is sovereign over the earth, over weather patterns, times, and seasons, that the planet itself submits to the will of God. Uh, they'll even concede many that God is sovereign over nations, uh, that the destinies of nations are in his hands, and they rise and fall, suffer and prosper as he decrees. And many will even conceive that world leaders are appointed by God and given their positions by him to further his degree. Uh, they will conceive God's sovereignty across the board. Uh, and, and, and often what I've heard alleged by some synergists is that Calvinists change the definition of sovereignty. They have their own definition of sovereignty. And I would say absolutely that's not the case. We agree uh, about the definition of sovereignty, the standard dictionary definition. Where we disagree is exactly what is God sovereign over. And I'm always one of those type of people that, that says it's not proper exegesis to jump here and jump there and jump here for verses. That in, in, instead we should 
tackle any passage and thoroughly execute it. But the one exception that I believe exists there is when we're talking about the nature and character of God because I believe that he has flowered all the books of Scripture with tidbits of information about himself, who he is, and how he operates. And so I believe that if we will look to Scripture, we get an idea of a God who simply does not fit uh, this God that we're presented with uh, by Armenians. And so back to the point, uh, synergists uh, in general, and I would include Armenians in this, I don't believe it would be disrespectful, uh, they will concede that God is sovereign over so much, but then we get to a point where they start getting a little nervous. Slow down a little bit. Hang on. I, I, I don't know that I can agree with this, uh, I feel that they think. And that is that God is sovereign over even the eternal destiny of man. This, I think, is where uh, the Armenian has the problem. But I think if we investigate exactly what salvation is, because that seems to be the issue. I've heard when people make the allegation that God is a monster, generally the problem is with the idea that, so you're telling me that God just predestined some people to go to heaven and everybody else goes to hell. And so that just sounds noxious and odious to their ears. Again, I believe this is due to the presuppositions and traditions that we fall victim to. And so I would say to anyone, if you, if you desire to debate uh, a Calvinist, uh, no matter what kind of exegesis he presents to you uh, on the individual so-called five points of Calvinism, you'll never accept it. You just simply can't because there's an idea that you have about Christ and that you have about God that will not let you uh, accept those conclusions. And so that's what I want to focus on. I've heard James White say often that there should be a sixth point uh, added to Calvinism, and it should be the number one point, and that is the sovereignty of God. And, Tyler, some of this stuff I'm going to say, you've heard me say uh, a million times. Uh, but only understanding this about God could we ever uh, come to the conclusion that, that, that the Calvinist hermeneutic, the Calvinist interpretive uh, methodology could be true. We could only ever believe that once we see exactly who God says he is. And I think a good way of doing that is going through Scripture. And obviously, I don't have the time. Tyler, you know me. I could talk for two hours without stopping. I'd love to tell every point of Calvinism and Reformed theology uh, all at once. Uh, but since we don't have the time, I'm not going to be able to give scriptural citations for, for everything that I say. Uh, but anyone who wants to message me again, Michael Chandler Keaton on Facebook, or if you just hear what I'm saying and you've never heard this in Scripture, uh, you can Google it to confirm it is true. But when we talk about God and the character that he's revealed to us, he has revealed himself as in complete control of everything in his universe. He declares the end from the beginning, right? Things that were from, from eternity past, from, uh, from ancient times, things that were not. And so we can read that, I think, as eternity past. I don't think anyone would have a problem with that. He decrees what is not, and it comes to pass. Uh, this is a God who decides when and where in history man will be born and the number of his days. We're told repeatedly in Scripture that this God does as he pleases, that his will cannot be thwarted, that he gives none, of his, none account of his matters to another, and that none can lift up their hands to stop him. Uh, he works all things. Why? After the counsel of his own will. We are told that he kills and makes alive. He makes folks rich. He makes folks poor. Uh, he brings kings up, and he, he brings them down. We're told that none can deliver from his hand. None can deliver from his hand or turn, turn his work back. Uh, he brings war and peace, sickness and death. He changes times and seasons. Uh, uh, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those that know understanding. There's not a sparrow that falls from the sky apart from him. Uh, and we know that Nebuchadnezzar, after he was 
humbled and forced to graze as a beast at pasture for seven years. When he came out of that, he prophesied about this God of the, of the, of the Hebrews, that he, he does as he pleases in the heavenlies and in, in the heavenly realms and upon the earth, and that men are counted as nothing before him. This is how absolutely sovereign uh, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar came to understand that God was. And when we hear these things and understand these things about this God, we must realize, again, what salvation is. This is him, a sovereign God, who does as he pleases, who, who declares the end from the beginning, who is absolutely in control of all things, has decided to claim a people to himself from out of the world. To in, to, in any way, to turn this into some sort of meritocracy is folly, to, to place any condition there when his sole purpose for, for, for claiming the people to himself is for his own glory. His word tells us that on our own, uh, again, I don't have time to dive into everything, but there is just verse after verse, and, and I don't think David would dispute this, that demonstrates without any shadow of a doubt that man is a wicked creature and that on his own he can do nothing pleasing to God. So in any way to, to make salvation meritocratic, not only does it uh, does it seem clunky and not really flow with Scripture, but it actually goes against this nature that he's revealed to us. And if I have time here, I didn't get time to really go into every Scripture, but there is one that I would love to dive into here. And uh, I'm old-fashioned. I've got an actual physical Bible here, so bear with me. But I would like to go to the 33rd Psalm, and I'm actually going to start uh, a little lower, uh, not because... Uh, I'm jumping out of context here, but just because uh, I think that we're going to start where it's particularly pertinent uh, to the discussion tonight. I'll just go ahead and start in verse 4. He says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. This is how mighty and powerful this God is. He spoke, and it all stood fast. Everything in creation. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He puts the depths in storehouses. He controls the boundaries of the oceans. Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. We must stand in awe of him because he is so different than us. He is so much more than us, so much greater than us. He is the boss. Verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He restrains the purposes of the people. So here we can see, yes, men, men will to do things, but they don't do anything libertarian libertarianly. They don't do anything outside the council. They don't do anything outside of or independent of the council of God. What he decrees will come to pass. Man's freedom must exist within the confines of the Lord's decree. Why? Because verse 11 tells us that the council of the Lord stands forever, the purposes of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. Not people that found him or, or had some libertarian choice to, to come after him, but the people he has chosen as his inheritance. He chose Israel from all the peoples of the world and passed over many others that never even had any sort of opportunity to know him. Now, we know that there were foreigners uh, like Uriah and a few that came to know the Lord, but in general, he took one people and chose his own, and everyone else was passed over. Verse 13, we read, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place, from the place of his habitation, he, ga he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts alike. He considers all their works. Their very hearts fashioned by the Lord. No, and this is what I love in verse 16. No king is saved by a great army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. So whatever happens to us in life, the contraption that we see saving us, that's not it. If, we're, if we have a, a severe medical condition, 
and the doctors save us through some procedure. It's not that procedure that saves us. It's the Lord. Otherwise, that procedure would fail. He is in control. Verse 16 says, verse 17 says, a horse is a vain hope for safety. It will not deliver by its great strength. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart will rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be on us just as we hope in you. The last thing I want to mention, if I have time left, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Proverbs 16.4. Of course, I'm still flipping old school, so let me try and find that. Uh, but basically, uh, what Proverbs 16.4 says is that the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every outcome is from the Lord. Now, understand that when we read Proverbs here, we're talking about everyday scenarios in life, general truths. We're not talking about specifically a lot is decided. The outcome of a cast lot is decided by the Lord when it's someone trying to divine his will. No, just in general. When you cast a lot, every outcome is from the Lord. In our day, we could say when you flip a coin or roll a dice, every outcome of something even that minute directly controlled by the sovereign God of the universe. And I stand firm on the, on, on the belief that there's not a a rogue molecule in the, entire, in the entire galaxy. I believe that there is not a, a single dust particle that's floating anywhere other than where the Lord decreed before the foundation of the world that it should float. One minute, Mike. And I believe I'm pretty close to time if I'm not over there. You've got about 45 seconds left. You just want to... Uh, well, in that case, I would just, I would just reiterate, this is, our, this is the foundation of our belief. Why do we believe that God is so sovereign? Why do we believe that he control, that He predestines and decrees everything that comes to pass in time? We believe it because this is what we glean from his word. His word tells us he's that kind of God, the kind of God that is in absolute control. Everything he created, he created for his purpose, as we're told in Proverbs 16:4. even the wicked for the day of destruction. This is not a God who cedes his authority to anyone else. He has no, no reason to do so. Good job, Mike. That that was that was a really good opening statement, man, and right on time too. Um, so with that, let me uh, let me reset my timer real quick, and I will turn it over to David. David, whenever you're ready, I'll start the timer when you start speaking. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much again for having me on. Uh, my opening statement maybe or I might be improvising a bit because I had originally planned on a 10 minute opening statement before we uh, upped it to 15 minutes. So this, uh, <laughs> this may be short, uh, or I may just do a lot of improvising and uh, a lot of uhs and ums. So forgive me if that's the case. Um, but yeah, so let me just uh, say that I'm assuming that there's a, a good degree of familiarity with Calvinism and to some extent with Arminianism here. Uh, the, the topic was kind of, you know, why do we think that these uh, respective theologies read scripture in the way that they do? Because, uh, uh, Tyler, when you approached me about this, you mentioned that, you know, we're, we're all dealing with the same data, but we're coming to very different conclusions. And uh, so I'm not going to be offering so much a defense of Arminianism here as I will be just kind of listing some mistakes that I think Calvinists make. Uh, and, and, and I'm not saying these are like purposeful and deliberate mistakes, but some mistakes that I think that Calvinists do make when uh, trying to interpret scripture. And uh, I think that this is going to at least help explain why they come to some of the conclusions that they do. Uh, and I'll be using some examples to illustrate this. And so I'll be offering kind of an implicit defense of Arminianism through that. And then, you know, I'll move into more of an explicit defense as we uh, get into the open discussion later on. 
But uh, yeah, so as I said, we're discussing why Arminians and Calvinists read the Bible the way that they do. Uh, it's my hope that this discussion leads to a clearer understanding of the issues uh, so that the debate really can move forward. Because uh, we get so hung up on, you know, the same the same proof texts. And so I think methodology is where so much of the differences lie in debates in general. And this one's no exception. So the uh, first mistake that uh, I would point out is I think Calvinists have a tendency to put systematic theology before exegesis. I'm aware of about a dozen Arminian systematic theologies in existence. Now, there could be more than that. There probably are, but um, you know, they, they're just a lot harder to come by. Uh, just suffice to, face, suffice to say that Arminian systematic theologies are, are much rarer than Calvinist systematic theologies. Uh, there are hundreds of Calvinist systematic theologies and, and, you know, there's some good ones out there. So uh, I, I don't want to knock systematic theology here, but uh, I think that this, the numbers here demonstrate that generally speaking, the enterprise of systematic theology is much more important to the Calvinist than it is to the Arminian. And uh, again, that's not in and of itself a bad thing, but I do think it has some unfortunate results it can lead Calvinists to skew what scripture is saying for the sake of having everything just make sense. Uh, and I really think that this is pretty well demonstrated by an issue like the extent of the atonement. Knowledgeable Calvinists will readily admit that no passage of scripture explicitly teaches the doctrine of limited atonement. Uh, now, that's not, of course, to say that they don't believe that there's a biblical case that can be made for it. Yes, they do. But this is more or less something that's, you know, being drawn out uh, logically from what the passage is teaching instead of, you know, an explicit teaching of the passage. Uh, so I think that's kind of explains why the vast majority of arguments, uh, you know, for limited atonement, uh, like the double jeopardy argument, for example, just has nothing to do with scripture. Uh, by contrast, the Arminian case for general atonement is based directly out of the teachings of Scripture. Like we, we can point to scriptures like Hebrews 2 9 that says that Christ tasted of death for all men. We can point to scriptures like First uh, Timothy 2 6, which teach that, uh, that Christ died for all. And so uh, we would say that this is actually something that scripture directly teaches. Uh, and when I read the Calvinist literature on this, these sorts of texts seem to be treated like something that needs to be explained away. And I think that, you know, limited atonement is just a single example of an all too common practice of letting one's systematic theology dictates one's exegesis rather than giving priority to the text of scripture, right? So if everything doesn't make sense to the Calvinist, then they will often let that, you know, determine how they're interpreting the scripture. And I, I don't, I, I think that's an exegetical mistake. Uh, a second mistake would be ignoring the historical context of the New Testament. Calvinism came out of the Protestant Reformation, and that was a historical event that was far removed both chronologically and geographically from the events of the first century. Now, uh, Calvinism was born out of this Western individualized context, and that shows both in the exegesis and the theology of its defenders. This issue becomes really pronounced when we examine the doctrine of election. Calvinists see election as being primarily individual. So when Paul speaks of people being chosen, uh, think of Ephesians 1-4, right? He chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Calvinists tend to see this as being God choosing people individually rather than as a corporate body or a group. 
But I would venture to argue that that is an extremely anachronistic way to read the Bible. Uh, in the first century or in first century Palestine, people had their identity in their nation or their tribe. Individuals considered themselves part of a group of people. So when the Israelites thought of themselves as chosen, they understood that they were God's chosen people, a chosen nation. But the thought was not, oh, God chose me to be a Jew. No, the thought was, because I am a Jew, that's why I'm chosen. See, So it's corporate first, individual secondarily. And that's just really how election was understood uh, as a sort of this corporate thing. And we clearly see that in the Old Testament. Uh, we know that like the nation of Israel is chosen through representatives, right? Like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then uh, God says, I will make of you a great nation. So who's chosen? It's, it's a people uh, through that corporate head. And that that's just, that's the consensus. Of that's how election is understood in the Old Testament. Uh, interesting as well is if we read the Second Temple rabbinic writings, they also understood election as being corporate. Uh, and Paul, we know, is very well-read, well-educated. We would have every reason to uh, think in advance that this is how he understood election as being corporate. Like, we need really strong evidence from his own writings that he uh, was this changing the consensus view on election. Uh, but we don't really have that. In Paul's mm. own writings, we see that God chooses a body of people, the church, through a corporate head, namely Christ. Uh, we see this really well in the illustration of the olive tree in Romans 11. Paul uh, likens the, the, the base or the root to Christ and then people to branches. And uh, he says that, you know, the reason that a person is grafted into that tree is through their faith and that they can be cut off for their unbelief. Uh, well, what's chosen there? Is God choosing which branches get put on the tree? Well, I mean, in the sense, yes, in the sense that if they believe, then he chooses them. But really what is chosen is the overall tree and whether you're a part of that, Paul says, depends on whether or not you're believing. And that illustrates corporate election perfectly. And uh, so what I think is that Calvinists have, you know, misunderstood that uh, either by, you know, not looking at the context of that. And so uh, assume that uh, election is individual first. And that leads to some of uh, the, the exegetical conclusions that they come to. Uh, mistake number three would be a failure to understand the other position. I've read the Calvinist literature fairly widely, and it is my unfortunate conclusion that very few Calvinists do their homework. They seem largely unaware of what Arminianism is and what Arminian or and that rather that Arminianism is not monolithic. In other words, not every Arminian reads the Bible in exactly the same way. Uh, you know, this might even be used to argue against the point I just made that Arminians actually traditionally had seen election as individual and based on God's foreknowledge. Uh, rather than being unconditional. But I, again, would say that I think that that is an anachronistic way to read the Bible. And I would apply that same argument to Arminians who hold this view of election based on foreknowledge that I just think it's anachronistic. But but returning to this, this third issue here, uh, this issue of you know not understanding Arminianism, I think this has led to a lot of gross misrepresentations. It's charged that we believe things like that we save ourselves, that God is obligated to save us when we believe, that God is trying and failing to save people. And all of this is just not true. I've never seen a single reputable Arminian make any of these claims. And yet the notion that they do is found throughout the Calvinist literature. 
While Arminian literature abounds with references to leading Calvinist theologians and scholars, Calvinists cite few, if any, Arminians in their work. And so these myths about Arminian theology seem to live on because Calvinist authors are getting their information from each other rather than from what the Arminians are actually saying. Uh, this mistake can be seen really clearly in the so-called golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, 29 through 30. Just about every Calvinist author seems to assume that all Arminians read this text as God looking into the future and electing people based on whom he foresaw as believing. And of course, some Arminians do read the text this way, but to suggest that this is the only way that Arminians read the text uh, just betrays that Calvinists are not reading the Arminians on this. The leading Arminian scholars of today, Brian Abasciano, William Klein, Leroy Fourlines, Robert Pick Rilly, uh, not, in, not in Arminian, but even Leighton Flowers, uh, none of them read this text that way. Uh, and you know, I don't see the, the, the best proponents, their interpretations, like ever being interacted with. Instead, like we're still going after this view that it's God looking through a crystal ball or something. A fourth mistake, I think, would be a failure to give priority to other authorial usages. Whenever the meaning of a word is unclear in scripture, uh, it's always advisable to see how that word is used elsewhere throughout scripture. And sometimes words are used in multiple different ways. When there are many possible ways of, of, the, of to reading a particular word, the most weight is to be given to how the author of that disputed word uses that same word elsewhere in the same book. And I think, you know, a failure to really consistently apply that leads to some of the interpretations that we get in the book of Hebrews. For example, these warnings against falling away. Uh, one of the most famous ones comes from Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Uh, describes people who have been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers with the Holy Spirit, and then they fall away. Uh, well, Calvinists, in my opinion, tie themselves in knots to explain how that is not actually referring to saved people so like we, we get references to the word enlightened like they'll take us over to how it's used in the gospel of john but how the author of hebrews himself uses it in chapter 10 it's pretty clear he's using it as a synonym for salvation there so you know it, it would make sense to apply that to hebrews 6 uh, tasting the heavenly gift another example that say well you know that means that they just kind of nibbled at it or sampled it but if we go to hebrews 2 9 where he says that christ tasted of death for all men obviously christ really fully experienced death so in hebrews 6 we should see this as you know a full experience of salvation here uh, so uh, another example that would be in Hebrews 10, uh, when it says that uh, the person who uh, has been sanctified by the blood of Christ uh, falls away. I see people go through all kinds of stretches to like go to 1 Corinthians and say, well, look, sanctification doesn't have to refer to salvation over here. But the point is, in, in Hebrews, and especially in Hebrews 10, it does, uh, is particularly when it says it's by the blood of Christ. Uh, so I do think that that failure to give priority to other authorial usages does a lot of violence to the text of Scripture, especially in the warnings in Hebrews. I think that's where that's particularly pronounced, but elsewhere as well, like, for example, 1 John 2, 2, where it says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. The word is you or the word world is used almost two dozen times, and it typically refers to unbelievers. It certainly never refers to the elect. And yet, uh, Calvinists would have to make it mean that to preserve uh, limited atonement here.
uh, and so again, I, I would just reiterate that we should give priority to how the author is using the term elsewhere in his own uh, book, as well as in his other writings. But of course, the particular book is what gets priority. Mistake number five would be a failure to consider other possible meanings of their proof texts. This is perhaps the most common mistake among Calvinists. They will cite a proof text in support of their position, but then be unprepared to defend their reading against other valid uh, interpretations. So for example, Psalm 115.3 says that God does as he pleases, and Calvinists often cite this as a proof of theological determinism. But like, I want to ask, has it ever dawned on them that this might it might just please God to allow man a libertarian free will? Determinism doesn't follow from that text. Romans 9.18 says that God has mercy on whom he will, and Calvinists often use this text to prove that election is unconditional. But have they ever considered that God may want to show mercy to those who believe, as Romans 10 and 11 make so clear? One minute, uh, David. Okay. Uh, Acts yeah. thirteen forty eight says that Gentiles who were appointed to eternal life believed. Uh, and Calvinists will often use that verse to prove unconditional election. But are they aware that the word tasso has a broad range of uh, possible meanings and that appointed is not by any means the default meaning? Uh, and even if it were correctly translated as appointed, you know, we have nothing in the text that suggests that this is unconditional. John 6.44 tells us that no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws them. Uh, but again, nothing in the text suggests that it's unconditional uh, who is drawn. And I think that we even have evidence that it is conditional. So, you know, while I believe that there are other mistakes to be shared, I think these five are perhaps some of the most glaring. Uh, I appreciate Calvinists, they're my brothers in Christ, but I, I do strongly disagree with them on uh, exegetical grounds. And you ended with three seconds left to go, man. So if you improvise like most of that, job well done, man. Good good job, good job. I, that, that Impressive, man. I, I, I appreciate that, man. I really do. Um, so let's... Let's go ahead and transition to the 10-minute uh, rebuttals. Um, if you guys are just tuning in, since we are live on the radio, if you guys are just tuning in, um, and if you've stayed with us for this long, thank you. Um, uh, first and foremost, you can uh, catch more episodes at www.completecenters.com. Uh, you can find David on YouTube over at, uh, what's your YouTube channel, David? Um, Reason Faith. Because of Faith. Faith Because of Reason. Faith Because of Reason. Okay, backwards. I'm sorry, man. Um, and then fine. you can... Okay, and then uh, you can find Michael on uh, Facebook as well under Michael Chandler Keaton. Um, so let's go ahead and transition uh, to the 10-minute rebuttals. Michael, um, are you ready, bro? I'm ready. All righty. I will, um, as soon as, yeah, as soon as you start talking, I will start the timer. Okay, uh, first of all, I'm not certain. Uh, if I properly indicated uh, in the beginning how much respect I do have for David. As everyone just witnessed, uh, he was basically winging it and presented uh, a very educated uh, and well-worded uh, opening statement there. And nobody here is disputing David's intelligence. Uh, certainly, he is a bright guy and a person who I love as a brother in Christ and have a respect for intellectually. Uh, I would say that few people uh, that I associate with uh, uh, would compare to. Uh, deep respect for David's uh, study and his intellect. Uh, but that being said, obviously I do disagree with much of what uh, David had to say. Uh, I would say to David's uh, comments on systematics uh, that systematic theologies that were not developed just for the sake of developing a systematic theology. 
but in order to harmonize and to systematize and just to render Scripture contextually consistent. And he went on to talk about limited atonement, and he is indeed right. There is not a specific verse where uh, we're told, you know, Christ Jesus died only for this group here uh, in an overt manner. Uh, I know David uh, doesn't put too much stock in the I lay down my, my life for my sheep argument. I know that he, he, he generally dismisses that pretty quickly, but I do think uh, there is value there because only twice, really, that I can think of right off the bat did Christ really go into any kind of detail about who it was uh, that he was going to give his life for. And he mentions uh, what an honor it is for a man to lay down his life for his friends, uh, which indicates someone has a close relationship with him. And when he says that, I lay down my life for my sheep. If we do read John 6, the very least we understand uh, is that not everyone belongs to a sheepfold. So I don't think that we should summarily dismiss that. And I believe that systematics are good in the sense that uh, we're able to harmonize uh, things in a way that we can explain them uh, easier uh, and and in an exegetical fashion uh, through, of course, a proper hermeneutic. Uh, I believe that, uh, uh, that... you know, there's not a single verse, I don't think, that Calvinists have to explain away. I don't think that we explain away anything. I just simply think that when we come to what some might call a problem verse for Calvinists, we understand, first of all, uh, what is the context here, what's being said, and what cannot be said. And when I say what cannot be being said, what I mean is there are certain passages that are primary texts for certain doctrines, and there are others that aren't. For instance, I do firmly believe that John 6 is a primary text on salvation. This is the Lord speaking about what he's going to do, how the process works, the, call, the drawing from the Father. Uh, so I believe that's a primary salvation text. I don't believe, for instance, Second Peter 3, 9 is. Uh, uh, we're talking there about the return of Christ. Hey, people are telling us, they're mocking us. Why is he not returning, right? And so this is a peripheral verse that mentions uh, uh salvific things, but it's not a primary text on salvation. And so I don't think we explain away any verse. I think we try to find a proper context that renders not just that passage or even that book, but the entire pan-canonical corpus of Scripture consistent and coherent, that it coheres together, that it accords together and comports completely together. And obviously none of us are going to be perfect, but that's what Calvin is saying for it. I don't think there's any text that we attempt to explain away. Uh, as far as Calvinism being born... Uh, with the Protestant Reformation, I would say that, no, uh, you know, obviously uh, we all can see that, you know, for the first 1,500 years of church history, there were no Calvinists. I don't think any of us would, well, maybe some of us would, that you and I know, Tyler, but I certainly wouldn't uh, uh, assert that there were Calvinists uh, uh, before the Protestant Reformation. But there were uh, certain, uh, certain, uh, certain Calvinist beliefs uh, that we see periodically through the church fathers and through church history, uh, certain Calvinist beliefs we see in, 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 in early form. What Calvin actually did was he he systematized that. He formulated that into a written and coherent doctrine uh, that we could understand. Uh, but he wasn't coming up with something completely new. I think it's also important to remember that with the Protestant Reformation, this is really where the practice and the ability to exegete Scripture really took off and, and kicked into high gear because this was the time in history when more and more people had access to scriptures and in the and, and in uh, their native tongues. So it's only natural that we should see uh, deeper dives into doctrine uh, after the Protestant Reformation. Uh, 
and we know that uh, as they continued, uh, the reformers continued to fall more and more away from, from Rome, they began to go back and investigate doctrines that the church had always accepted uh, uh, during the ascendancy of Rome, during the time when Rome was the church uh, in power. Uh, and so that's why things like the atonement and, and election, were, I think, were opened up and looked at again. Uh, and obviously the backbone of our theology, which is justification by faith. Uh, he talked about uh, Israel's election. And obviously God told Israel, this isn't based on anything that you did. It's not because you were more numerous than all the people. Uh, you know, this was me making a sovereign choice. Uh, it was indeed uh, because, because that's not a perfect uh, example uh, of what we see in the New Testament and the New Covenant with, the, with, with Christians. It's not the same exact kind of election, but it is a good shadow and a good type to understand that God does indeed select a people to himself while passing over others. Uh, but we need to be clear that not all individual Jews were pleasing to God, and not all individual Jews of the Old Testament period, indeed possibly the majority of them, will not be in heaven with us, uh, because we understand that just like Abraham, they were justified by their faith in the promises, and obviously many of them were not faithful. Uh, so we still see a personal uh, and individual uh, sense there uh, when it comes to belonging to God and being uh, included amongst his people. I think we see that the individuals that we see called out by name, like Abraham and, and Jacob, the, there's a good uh, indication of that uh, when we read their stories of the personal nature of that and the individual nature of that, and not just the fathers of Israel. Uh, later on, we see with the prophets that the Lord was setting these people apart. Uh, he told uh, he told uh, Jeremiah, you know, before you, were, you know, I knew you uh, when you were in the womb. Uh, so uh, we know that he actively sought out Isaiah and Isaiah and made him a prophet. So. There was an individual always uh, even running uh, concurrent with uh, Israel as an elected nation. Uh, still, the promises were individual uh, in a sense that uh, they were applied to people personally based on their faith. Uh, going on here, uh, I think that David really, and I can understand some of his frustration here, but I think it's a little different. He is of the opinion that a lot of people just don't study Arminianism and just aren't really educated on Arminianism. And you notice that David named off a few names of current Arminians. And I think where we have the disconnect here is that I'm a Calvinist because of where I stand on the five points of the contention uh, at Dort. Everyone's labeled a Calvinist based on where they stand on the five points. And as David has already pointed out, there's different flavors of Calvinists. We have hundreds of systematic theologies. So there's, there's certainly different flavors of Arminians. But what we refer to as Arminians on our side are those people who, on those five points of contention of Dort, uh, they came down with our with, with Arminius, uh, the Arminians, the Remonstrants, uh, on those issues. Well, four of those issues, because they were even split on eternal security then, uh, and it was much later when uh, actually that position of, you know, you can lose your salvation was actually solidified. So I would just say that we, we, it's not, we don't feel the need sometimes. Now, if we're going to debate someone, obviously intellectual integrity dictates that we study their position, but in general, uh, when Calvinists are, are when Calvinists are critiquing Arminianism, uh, they're simply basing that on the five points, and we don't have to read uh, everybody's uh, work on that because we already know what we're reading consistently on soteriology. If you uh, are deviating from that, uh, you're wrong. Uh, whatever you say. Now, again, if we're going to debate someone, intellectual integrity dictates that we would study and familiarize ourselves with that position. But I don't think Calvinists feel the need to read every individual work that comes up from the different offshoots and sects of, uh, of uh, Arminianism. Uh, 
he mentioned that uh, David mentioned that Calvinists need to consider uh, alternative meanings uh, of some words, and I would say that we already do that. I would say that that's very important to us is, is looking, for instance, and I think one of the best examples is pause. I mean, I don't know how many synergistic types would 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 take all uh, and, and 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 translate that one minute, Michael, every single individual on Earth. When in fact, uh, that's the opposite of of what we see there. Uh, rarely does does possibly refer to every individual on Earth. So I think it, it's 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 safe to say, okay, this is talking about all types of people. Uh, and in that same vein, I think we do consider the alternative meanings. Uh, uh, quickly, uh, the alternative, the, the warning uh, passages in Hebrews, I believe we 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 err when we when we when we present that there's only one way that those could apply. I think there are multiple ways those apply, and we should always remember that either before or after, usually surrounding the morning passages in Hebrew, we see a work of Christ or, or, a, or a, an attribute Ten of Christ seconds. described as perfectly doing what Christ came to do. And so I think that, uh, uh, and I do believe John 6 indicates that there isn't some condition uh, for salvation. All right, man, that was awesome. Uh, let me uh, reset. And then let me just uh, make a quick announcement. Um, after David's 10-minute um, rebuttal of Mike's opening statement and his rebuttal, uh, we're going to take a quick little break um, just for a chance for us to get you know ready um, to transition into this uh, opening uh, discussion. Um, but in that, whenever we come back, we will be taking phone calls. So if you want to go ahead and get something ready to write that number down, whenever we come back, I'll give out that number, and then you guys can go ahead and start calling in. Um, well, we can, give the, the we can give the number out uh, again and again. It's 855-456-624. That's 1-855-450-6624. Uh, and you're welcome to call in, pay attention, listen to the debate uh, as you call in. And, and uh, yeah, but yeah, we'll take your questions and put you live in, in just a little bit after the break. Again, that number, 855-456-624. That's one 855 Six six two four, and that's why I have Noah as my co-host. Thank you, buddy, uh, for that. So, without further delay, um, David, whenever you start talking, brother, I will start the timer. All right, sounds good. Uh, and just a reminder, I'm uh, going to be responding to uh, Michael's opening statement, not to the response he just gave to my opening statement. Sure. Uh, so, first, uh, I would, of course, want to disagree with anyone that would say that there is absolutely no case to be made for Calvinism, that there's no way you could read the Bible and come away with that, and that, you know, this is just a complete, you know, you have to be taught it, and there's absolutely no way you could get that out of Scripture. Um, you know, I completely agree with them. I think that there's actually a strong case to be made for Calvinism. I can definitely see how, you know, reading passages like uh, Romans 9 and John 6 and Ephesians 1, and, you know, particularly if if you know, have divorced, uh, in, in the case of John 6, if you know you have that passage divorced from you know the, the rest of the teaching throughout the Gospel of John, uh, or in Ephesians 1, if you know you don't you know understand how uh, Second Temple Jews uh, thought of election as being corporate, uh, and if you don't understand you know the reason uh, Paul is writing Romans 9, then I can absolutely see how you could come to the conclusion that these uh, texts are teaching Calvinism. So, yeah, I mean, I would also want to push back against anyone who says that there, there's nothing here to discuss, nothing, you know, nothing here to see. That is certainly not the case. Uh, let me go uh, to this issue of sovereignty, because I think that's what most of his uh, opening depended on, was uh, his particular understanding of sovereignty. Now, he, uh, I was initially feeling relieved when he said that, uh, you know, he doesn't think that Calvinists redefine sovereignty uh, and that, 
you know, um, that, that, that they're willing to work with the same definition out of the dictionary that we are. But then he disappointed me with the rest of his opening because he pretty much went on to go under the assumption that sovereignty means determinism. And that's exactly what our, our side is saying that you have redefined the term to me. Uh, to be sovereign just to me means to be, you know, in control. It means to be free to do as you want. And in, in that, you know, under that definition, we have no disagreement that God is sovereign. So we don't say that God isn't sovereign over uh, something like salvation over or over our wills. What we're meaning is that God is not causing our choices. So we don't uh, affirm any sort of theistic determinism. Uh, and of course, you know, there's a lot of theological reasons for that. You know, for example, we know it's impossible for God to lie. Uh, if every time, you know, people do tell lies, if you say that God is causing that, it's difficult to see how God can, then cannot, you know, be said to be lying. Uh, or you could even apply that more generally to just false beliefs that people hold if you uh, were to define a lie as deliberately leading somebody to believe that which is not true, then literally every false belief that any person has ever held, which is all of us, was caused by God. And I mean, it's senseless to call Satan the father of lies. At that point, God becomes, you know, the, the father of every lie. Uh, so, you know, th there are a lot of reasons, I think, to push back against theistic determinism uh, just on those sorts of grounds. Uh, it's not that we don't think that God has complete control over salvation. It's that we believe that God has sovereignly allowed man to be free in regards to whether or not he believes. Nothing in that would violate the the dictionary definition of sovereignty. It is only if you uh, say that sovereignty cannot allow for conditionality. So you're putting some, ironically, it would be you who is putting some kind of stipulation on God to take that definition of sovereignty. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that would just be my thoughts on that point. Uh, now, this, this issue of God doing as he pleases, uh, theologians have long noted that we have to distinguish between the two wills of God. And I mean, John Piper is a five-point Calvinist and has really, you know, made, argued extensively that God has two wills. And I don't even agree with the, the place that Piper draws the distinction, but, um, to, you know, I think it's as simple as God does what he wills, end of story, uh, that that simply cannot do justice to the biblical text. And Calvinists, you know, Calvinist theologians, they recognize this. Uh, we all agree that God has two wills. We disagree on exactly where the distinction should be drawn, but uh, we know that there is a sense in which uh, God's ultimate will can't be thwarted. However, there's a sense in what his revealed will is, uh, what God has said he wants to come to pass, does not always come to pass. And we've got clear examples of this. Uh, for example, Jeremiah 19.5, Jesus, or, or, sorry, God says that, uh, you know, he did not decree that uh, that uh, um, the, the Israelites would sacrifice their children to, to false gods, uh, and uh, that that would you know, are we gonna say, oh well, he actually secretly did decree that? I mean, that that's nowhere in that text. So there's got to be some sense in which what God uh, wants to happen does not happen. Uh, remember when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem for, because uh, he said he would wanted to gather them as a mother, uh, as a mother hen would gather her chicks and they would not. The, the reason he gives, sorry about that. The reason he gives for why they uh, have not been, for why they have not been, uh, uh, the reason he hasn't gathered them is because they, uh, they weren't willing. And so from that, we would see that, yes, God has uh, decided. So God's ultimate purpose is to give people 
some sort of freedom. Uh, so to the point of that God's desires, those sort of secondary desires can be overridden by this primary desire. Uh, you know, we see this in, in the, the, the text, which say that God wants all people to be saved. Uh, well, yes, he does. Uh, in my view, I think that that's perfectly exegetically defensible from the text that we would go to. Uh, but obviously, all people are not going to be saved. And so uh, there's some sense in which we have to uh, you know, account for that. And so, again, I would go back to this distinction between the two wills of God. One more example, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says that no temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man, but that God is faithful who does not tempt you or doesn't allow you to be tempted above your ability to say no, but with every temptation makes a way of escape. That is simply not true if people uh, don't have um, some kind of free will. Uh, in the sense, uh, because we know that people do sin. We know that Christian, I know that that text is addressed to Christians, but uh, it, since Christians do sin, this text is teaching that you never actually have to. So, uh, you know, to say that, you know, determinism follows from sovereignty is not true and it is not compatible with the scriptures. Uh, this other issue of libertarian free will, it, it seems to me that you're operating on a, a, a faulty definition of it. You said that, you know, man, it doesn't put man outside of God's control or outside of God's sovereignty. And I mean, I agree with that. I don't know any believer in libertarian free will who says that it does. Um, that that's not what the claim of libertarian free will is. Libertarian free will is is not freedom from you know God's realm of control. It is uh, the ability to choose between a range of possible options that are consistent with your nature. So if you believe that you could have done other than you do, like if you believe that you really had the ability to not have this discussion with me right now, then that is libertarian free will on compatibilism, which would say that freedom and determinism are compatible, but define freedom in a way that you are free if you're doing what uh, you want to do, uh, even if your desires are completely determined, uh, then they do not believe that you have the ability to do otherwise. So you you literally had to be here. It was, it was necessary that you be here having this discussion with me today. If you don't believe that, then you do believe in some kind of libertarian free will. Now, of course, we could get into the philosophy of it, that there's distinctions between hard libertarianism and soft libertarianism. Uh, and, you know, if, if someone advocated hard libertarianism, and I don't really know anyone who does take that, then, I mean, yeah, because that thesis is that you're always free to do absolutely anything thing all the time. And that's the reason that almost nobody holds to it is because that's just obviously not true. Uh, and certainly no Arminian holds to that view. So uh, libertarian free will just posits that, you know, we can do either A or B or C or, you know, whatever choices that we have before us. And we don't even believe that salvation is among those choices unless God graciously puts it there via prevenient grace. Uh, you, you talk about God choosing a people in the Old Testament, and I would agree with that. But notice in the Old Testament, anyone could join that. You uh, you brought up the example of um, Uriah, and that, 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 that I think that's a good example. Uh, another one would be uh, oh, oh, her name is escaping. One minute, David. Okay, yeah, the 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 one uh, lady uh, Rahab, yeah, that we have. Uh, that she, you know, joined the Israelites. We have people like Korah who fall away from this uh, and that people just could be apostates by not keeping the law and such. So uh, 
it's it's corporate first. God chooses these people through the corporate representatives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's how I would posit election works in the New Testament, that God does choose uh, himself a people, namely the church, and that anyone is free to join that people through faith, or anyone can leave that um that body through unbelief. And one other thing, let me touch Proverbs 1633. Uh, it seems to me that you just haven't considered all the possibilities on that verse. You say that, you know, the outcomes are determined by God. Well, yes, but that doesn't mean that, you know, determinism follows from that. We live in a cause and effect universe. So yes, absolutely. God can do that. And that doesn't mean that he has to violate uh, free will. And I'm sorry, I'm out of time. All right. Thank you, David, uh, for that, man. Good job, guys. Excellent opening statements. Excellent rebuttals. Um, and Noah, do you want to take us out real quick for a break, brother? Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh, we come back. Uh, phone lines will be open, 855-450-6624. That's 1-855-450-6624. David, uh, uh, Michael, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll take a short break. We'll be back in a little bit, and uh, we will uh, we'll continue the debate. That happens next. You're listening to KEQQ 88.3 LPFM Grand Forks. This is the Complete Sinner's Guide, a debate hosted by Tyler Fowler, myself, Noah Light. Delighted to be here with you this evening. Uh, we'll bring back our uh, our guests, Tyler, David, Michael. Welcome back into the program. What's going on, man? Uh, thank you guys for still tuning with us. If you are good, if you're just tuning in, uh, we do have a debate, a discussion going on uh, with Michael Keaton and David Pullman. Um, and it's going absolutely phenomenal so far. Um, thank you guys for the for the the time you've taken to study for this, you know, to do this. And it, it takes a lot of work. I prepared for a debate uh, with David, you know, the other day, and I know that it takes a lot of work. And I still wasn't prepared. Uh, so it it just goes to show you these guys do really take this stuff serious. And I mean, this is life and death. I mean, it really is. Um, we've got a we've got go a couple phone, we we got a couple phone calls. I was hoping we okay. could get to. Is that a cool? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me. Yeah, let's go ahead and start with a phone call, and then uh, we'll get into uh, some questions. So, who do we got first? Eight fifty five four fifty six six two four. That is the number to join us. One eight five five four five zero six six two four. Good evening. You're on the air. Hey, can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Okay, I was making sure that my fan wasn't too loud. I'm sitting in the garage smoking a pipe, so. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, yeah, all all Calvinist things. Yeah, so um, quick, like, I guess, question um, towards, I don't know, a question or a statement. I'll try to make this quick. From my standpoint, and I would love to hear David's feedback from this, when we look at the the atonement of Christ, right, and from the limited, the limited atonement aspect, when you look at Old Testament Israel, Jews on the Day of Atonement, the, the high priest went in, entered into the temple. He was not dealing with the sins of Babylon. He was not dealing with the sins of Egypt. He was not dealing with the sins of the Moabites. 
he as the faithful high priest were only dealing with people that were in covenant faithfulness with God. Now, granted, we understand not every Jew that was in the covenant was faithful. We get all that. His job is a is a limited job. So if Christ is the greater Aaron or the greater Levite, if you will, how do I read Hebrews with the understanding of God's faithfulness to his people? And, and then with that in mind, say, therefore, all sins are paid for, because you quoted Hebrews 2.9, which, you know, no offense, I expected that one. But to be fair, Hebrews 8 and 10 talk about he has made our salvation perfect through his suffering, tasting death for everyone, and bringing many sons and daughters to Christ. When we understand, like, Christ is our mediator, if he's entering into the kingdom, I mean, entering into the temple once for all, um, on behalf of his people, how do I logically say, therefore, all sins are paid for? So, you know, that's just kind of my thought. I don't know what I'm supposed to do from here, but that's all I got. No, that's a very good question, David. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a few ways of looking at that. So, first of all, we have to be careful, you know, uh, when we're having any sorts of types and uh, prefigurings uh, to draw, well, to not draw conclusions from these that scripture itself doesn't draw, right? So when we're looking at Old Testament priests, yes, Jesus is our priest in the present age. And so there are gonna be similarities there, but there's also a lot of differences. And we even see these in Hebrews, uh, for example, that Jesus's uh, sacrifice actually uh, can take away sins, whereas old ones couldn't. Uh, we know that as old priests had to offer up sacrifices for their own sins, Christ doesn't. So we also see that there are differences there. And so it, I think it'd be um, unwise then to draw uh, a parallel then uh, because it was limited uh, just to to Israel and not anyone else, that therefore that is how uh, it should be understood in the new covenant as well. Particularly, I would say especially so, in light of statements, for example, Hebrews 2.9, and then there's general atonement passages everywhere that I think would actually contradict that that is one of the uh, points of that comparison. Uh, and then just uh, one other thing on that, I think, would be uh, that the warnings against falling away through, throughout Hebrews, and, and I'm sure you would probably disagree with my interpretation of these, but at least from my perspective, these provide clear evidence that someone can be atoned for, uh, and yet that person can be lost. And so to say that, you know, everyone for whom Christ died will be saved based on Hebrews, that is uh, on very thin ice in my view. But I think to answer the, the more fundamental question there of how can we say that all sins have been paid for and yet everyone is not forgiven. Uh, first of all, uh, well, well, we should understand the payment as being provisionary. So we have atonement purchased, but it is not applied. And I think the only way to deny a provisionary atonement would be be to say that everyone for whom Christ died was saved at the moment of Christ's death. And no Calvinist is going to affirm that uh, because they affirm justification by faith. So that necessarily commits us to the atonement being provisionary in some sense, but we don't have to say that uh, the atonement was uh, applied unconditionally. So a real payment was made, but that payment is not applied through faith. Or, or sorry, until a person exercises faith. Very good. Michael. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, oh, Michael. Yeah, sorry, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Do you, how would you? Uh, how would you respond? Uh, well, I would start off by agreeing with David. We really do need to exercise caution and be careful when we're dealing with typology and shadows and things like that. Uh, more so uh, when we're dealing with something like the example the caller gave, because we're talking about 
individual people there. Uh, but when it comes to uh, drawing those types with Christ and contrasting that with Christ, Hebrews not only encourages this, it tells us that this is indeed what, what the book is written for, to help you to understand, to help Hebrew Israelites understand when they're dealing with the Hebrews, the, the, the Jews around them that weren't Christians, uh, if they're tempted to go back uh, to their old ways. Uh, one of the things that I, would, I wanted to get to earlier is we have to, when we approach any of the warning passages, understand that uh, we should never, uh, I don't think, look at those as if there's only one application. Uh, I believe that there's there's uh, multiple ways that these could apply. Number one, for instance, I believe someone, uh, because we know that there's a, a faith that's a false faith. It's not actual saving faith. So uh, these verses could be used uh, as a condemnation to those who uh, who are within the fold, seemingly a part of the covenant, but inwardly are not. It could even be used to bring, to draw uh, genuine repentance from them. They might they could look at those verses. Wow, you know, because we as Calvinists do believe that not not just that God. Uh, uh, predestines and ordains all things, but that he ordains the means. And so for the genuine believer, this could simply be another one of those means. These warning passages could do the job that they were intended to do, and that job could be to make sure that we're constantly examining ourselves so that we never fall away. But the last thing I would add is anytime we see a warning passage in, in Hebrews, we should search around it. For instance, we were just talked about we just talked about uh two nine. And if we'll go down to ten we'll see, uh, because David said, you know, why we can interpret it this way or the other way, but we can always make the interpretation sure contextually. And if we read down, we read for it was fitting for him for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. So again, we see the perfection of what Christ did. Yes, there are warning passages, but it seems to me that uh, in reading in context, the last thing I would draw from that is that genuine believers could fall away. One eight fifty five four fifty six six two four. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. That is the number you can join us. Ask our experts. Uh, engage in the debate. Uh, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Yeah. Hello. How's it going? My name's Robert. Hey. Uh, How you doing, Robert? Give David a little pushback. Oh, doing well. Doing well. Wanted to give uh, David a little pushback. I think you know who this is. Um, <laughs> Hold on, real, real, real quick. Is this Doctor Robert Wiesner? Yeah. yeah. Not doctor, but Robert Wiesner. Yeah. Robert, what's up, man? How you doing? <laughs> how, how you doing, brother? Good, Good to talk to you, man. Yes, sir. Hey, so I think you probably know where I'm going to go with this. Um, I want to give some pushback about the statement you made regarding Second Temple Jewish ideas of election. Um, if we uh, know the history of the Second Temple period, uh, there were some developments, especially around what came to be called remnant theology which we, we know that language from Romans 9 to 11. And um, the idea was that not everybody, in, not everybody who was a child of Abraham was thought to be among the, the true Israel. And uh, due to you know, compromise around Hellenism, going back to the Maccabean Revolt and, and things like that, uh, the Jewish people began to say, well, not everybody who is a circumcised child of Abraham who we identify as being in the covenant, is truly in the covenant. There is an Israel within Israel. Uh, not, you know, it's, an, it's an individual basis. Up to that point, uh, one's membership in the covenant was a consequence of his or her birth into the covenant family. But now they start to, to draw lines. And, and you get uh, that explained in different ways by different groups. And 
uh, one group in particular, the Essenes, explained it in terms of divine predestination. Very, very clearly, uh, God chose from the beginning who would obey the covenant, and for them to obey the covenant meant to join their covenant community, which, interestingly, they called a new covenant community. They put a lot of emphasis on the Spirit, and they had washing rites, in a lot of ways very similar to uh, early Christianity. And Paul, uh, we, can, we can understand what Paul is saying in texts like Romans 9 to 11 by comparing his language to a group like the Essenes, and then to other groups like, uh, say, the, uh, the group that is responsible for writing a book like uh, uh, The Wisdom of Solomon, which we believe is a, a Pharisaic book. And when we do that, we see that Paul uses the precise same language, metaphors, I mean, even exact verbal correspondences showing in a text like Romans 9 to 11, uh, that in fact he, he identifies election in terms of, of, of God's determination in that regard. And, you know, David cited the rabbis, but they're not really Second Temple. They, the, the rabbinic literature mm. we have comes from hundred years, hundreds of years after the New Testament. If we want to get into texts that are Second Temple to give us a context for what's going on, Regarding election in the Second Temple period, we have to back up to texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Pseudepigrapha, the Apocrypha, and there we get a diversity, including something very, very similar to what Calvinists say is going on in the New Testament with election. So sorry to be long-winded there. <laughs> no, I, I I think whenever we go into explaining anything, like any one of us, Michael, David, or myself, like we are all extremely long-winded because there's just so much that goes into this, dude. And I am super excited that you called. Um, can I actually ask you a, cre- a question real quick, Robert? Yeah, sure. Okay, Sirach, um, Sirach 3310, you sent me a paper uh-huh. on it. Um, yeah, yeah. How, in, in your opinion, how does that... Um, kind of go into what we're discussing tonight. Um, and, I mean, I can read I mean, we've got time. Um, I don't know how much time you've got, yeah, but sure, if sure. we can read it later, I can. I, That's no problem. About, I've got yeah. about another two minutes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, yeah. well, you know what I'm talking about. I'll read it for the listeners later. Yeah. Um, but how do you think that affects, okay, yeah. you know, and text like that affects yeah. this conversation we're having sure, today? Sure, sure, sure. So, so I shared with you, David knows about it as well, an article I published with the oh, Westminster yeah. Theological Journal where I tried to, uh, uh, spell out where we have this predestinarian election ideology in the Second Temple period, and Sirach 33 is uh, one place, and it's one place is very interesting because it uses the same kind of potter clay imagery that Paul uses in Romans chapter 9. And um, what, what happens when you start talking about that is you, you want to look for background to it. Well, Paul, Paul specifically cites Isaiah 29, where uh, 29 verse 16, where um, the, the the idea of the imagery is that that God's purposes, like a potter, are inscrutable. The pot can't turn and say, "Hey, you messed up. You did this wrong. What are you doing? Why didn't you make me like this?" You get a similar thing in Isaiah 45 verse 9. Um, a typical move for non-determinist readings is to go to Jeremiah 18 where, again, you get a different use of the potter clay imagery, where the idea is Jeremiah as a prophet encouraging the covenant people, hey, you need to repent, telling them that um, you, you, your concern is, is, should be to repent and know that God is powerful, even though Babylon you know, is, is uh, at your walls and it looks like judgment is coming, 
uh, you know your God is powerful enough, repent, uh, he can turn this thing. And, um, of course, we know they don't repent, and, and judgment comes, they get taken away into exile. Right. Uh, but that's different from the imagery that Paul uses. Paul, again, he doesn't cite Jeremiah 18, he cites Isaiah. Well, where else do we see that imagery used the same way? We see it used the same way in Sirach 33, where he tells us very, very clearly that he's using that imagery to talk about the way God uh, shapes the destinies of men, and he uh, places some uh, on the path that, that, that uh, leads to glory. It's a, what's called a two-ways uh, wisdom ideology, and God puts them on the path towards uh, blessing and exaltation, which is covenant language, and others on a path that leads to, to cursing. And, and again, it's very explicit, especially in the Greek text. It's, it's talking about the destinies of all people, and, and whatever destiny one uh, goes towards, it says is in, in God's hand. It's, it's talking about his power, his determination, and, and Paul seems to be uh, dependent on that sort of use. Whether or not he's looking exactly at Sirach 33 is, is debated, but uh, I, think, I think he probably is, and because um, in, in that uh, whole section of Romans, uh, there's also another Second Temple text that uses potter clay imagery, and it does use it closer to Jeremiah 18. It's called the Wisdom of Solomon, and Paul seems to be rejecting a view in Romans like the one we find in the Wisdom of Solomon and favoring a deterministic view like we find in Sirach 33 and also in uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls where you also have potter clay and forming an imagery used to describe divine determination. Right. Right. So, David, I know there was a lot there, man. Um, did you follow uh, that? or? Yeah, yeah, I did. And uh, <laughs> okay. so, I, for, first, I, I would want to say that, you know, Robert, uh, your friend, I love you in the Lord, and uh, you are the PhD scholar on this. I am the layman. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I am a firm believer in the fact that scholars primarily should interact with uh, scholars on this. So uh, I would refer yeah. readers then to uh, Chad Thornhill's book, The Chosen People, where he goes through a lot of the Second Temple literature on this, like uh, Jubilees and yeah. First Enoch and, and stuff like that. And I know you've critiqued his work as well. So for people who want to see the yeah. other side of that, uh, go to Robert's work sure. and uh you know, work work through his critiques of Thornhill. Uh, there is some debate there, and I will agree that the Essenes, for example, did hold a uh, deterministic reading. Uh, as far as as far as Sirach goes, um, and I'm, I'm, I probably pronounced that wrong, but uh, I'm not convinced that there is a reference to that in uh, Romans nine. Uh, and by the way, I also don't opt for appeals to Jeremiah eighteen. I, I also find those to be kind of weak, but the Isaiah ones are definitely legitimate. I don't think the Isaiah ones support determinism. If there is a reference to Sirach in uh, Romans uh, 9, I also don't think that that supports determinism, but uh, but uh, that would be my view. I would also refer people to uh, Brian Abasquiano's upcoming uh, third volume in his trilogy on Romans 9. He will interact with those sorts of arguments, uh, and that that's really all I can give on that because uh, I'm obviously not as qualified as Robert to uh, to comment on those issues. It seems like somebody is really trying to get a hold of you, David. Like you are a popular man tonight. <laughs> it's it's super embarrassing. So I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good, man. Michael, um, do you have any comments? Do you do you know what we're talking about? Um, whenever or just just for the listeners who who may not know exactly what we're talking about, what references in Isaiah are you referring to, David um, or, or Robert? If you guys are still or if you're still here, 
Uh, one of them is yeah. Isaiah. I, I, I think. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Robert. You answer. Yeah, it's uh, Isaiah 29. I believe it's verse 16, and Isaiah 45, verse 9. And uh, what's the ref? I can't remember the exact verse reference. It's um, uh, in Romans. I think it's right around verse 15, or maybe a little later, like around 20. Um, okay. Anyways, in in that range, read from 15 to 20. You'll find it. The pot of clay okay. analogy there. And the first time Paul brings it up, you know, he asks that question, um, uh, does, you know, does the, uh, uh, you know, does the, does the vessel respond to the one who made it, you know, you know, why do you make me this way? And then, you know, that's an allusion to Isaiah 29:16. Is, is it all right if I add one more comment on that as well? Yeah. Yeah, I would also say yeah, that, uh, I think it is entirely possible that, you know, we could, uh, and, and Robert might have a response on this, but I would think that it is probably possible we could see the potter clay imagery in result to uh, the specific thing Paul's talking about here, I believe, is, is the hardening uh, of Israel. Uh, I think we could even see yeah. that as, you know, being deterministic without necessarily granting determinism. So that would be my other thought there. Okay. Okay. Michael, do you have, I mean, you've been kind yeah, of silent I, for, Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> you still there with us, so brother? Or? Uh, yeah, I'm still here, but, uh, uh, if the caller would like to answer again, that, that doesn't bother me. Okay. I, I know Robert, you said you only had a little bit oh, of time. Last, um, yep. Yep. La, la, last comment I'll, I'll, I'll make is, um, the, you know, the, whether or not Paul, you know, knows it, it well, we know he knows, Sirach, whether or not he's alluding to it directly, uh, what this does is it gives us context. So we say, well, how was this potter clay analogy used in the Second Temple period? Do, do any Jews use this language to describe determinism that has to do with individual election? And Sirach 33 and the Dead Sea Scrolls tell us, yeah, some Jews did. Um, so that means that we have to compare Paul's use of the imagery to, to theirs and to the imagery as it's used in other authors. Jeremiah 18 is one of them. Uh, the wisdom of Solomon is another, and what I what I've argued in in my work is that when you do that, Paul is using almost sometimes exact verbal parallels, the same yeah. phraseology as what you get in the deterministic sources. And so the, right. the only reason I, I bothered calling was, um, uh, you know, when David was talking about the Second Temple context, it just isn't the case that um, it's all corporate. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls had a corporate view of election. But they explain who repented and joined the community in terms of individual predestination. So they married corporate election and individual determination, divine determinism together, something grounded in what God did at the beginning of creation and assigning uh, some people to eternal life and other people to eternal destruction. And so um, that, that's the only point is just wanted to give a little pushback about what the, what the Jewish context, uh, you know, the world that Paul lived and breathed in, uh, has to say about this question. It's, it's, it's diverse, um, but I've argued, and, and other scholars, like you said, Thornhill uh, disagrees, um, but I've argued that Paul looks very much like those authors who held to a form of determinism in a number yeah. of places. Yeah, man, and I've, you know, in my own personal research on this, you know, I, I think Josephus not only refers to the Essenes as a deterministic group, but the Pharisees actually believed in a form of determinism, and they had the, you know, the free will um, concept in there as well. They, they, they were kind of like compatibilists in a sense, wasn't they, Robert? Or or how how would yeah, you describe I, I the Pharisees? That far. Okay. 
Yeah, I would say they were probably blissfully inconsistent. And what, what I mean by that sure. is you could look in, in one text. So like the wisdom of, or excuse me, the Psalms of Solomon is the second temple text that yeah. um, almost all scholars agree was produced by Pharisees. And it has uh, just clear as day an affirmation of, of something like uh, David's view of libertarian free will. And I don't see anything in it that shows any affirmation of determinism. So my thought is with the Pharisees, uh, one one guy might um, might be stronger in his affirmation of determinism. Another guy might be stronger in his affirmation of free will. But but both would have would have held to uh, all, all would have held to both in some sort of unresolved tension, uh, not being overly systematic. Whereas if you look at the, the Sadducees, according to Josephus, they were all absolutely libertarian, almost like deists, like God does yeah. not interfere with what human beings do. Uh, and then the Essenes, he says, everything is attributed to faith, which is, or faith, I'm sorry, which is uh, his way of saying divine providence, uh, meticulous sovereignty, that sort of thing. Sure, sure, absolutely. No, I, I do think, you know, looking at the historical context is extremely important in every situation. And, you know, because that's what the church was going through. This debate goes so much longer than just Calvinism versus Arminianism. I mean, it goes back into the first and second, third centuries, you know, even B.C. So um, thank you, Robert, man, for that. I know you just had a baby, dude. Congrats. Yeah, and, yeah. And um, enjoy, yeah, no, dude. Thanks, in, Enjoy. Um, yeah. Noah, you wanted to jump in uh, yeah. real quick, brother. Yeah, 855-450-6624. That's 1-855-450-6624. That is the number to join us tonight if you'd like to ask our panel of experts questions. John joins us uh, from Michigan. Hi, John. Welcome into the program tonight. Uh, it must have heard me wrong. It's actually Mississippi, not Michigan. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, that's all right. But um, you can probably tell by the way I talk. Um, anyway, so fellow yes, the, the question I had, and uh, I, I was a little late to the party because of work, but so hopefully y'all haven't been over this already. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I've I know about the um, sort of spectrum of libertarianism, compatibilism, and determinism. I wasn't really familiar with the uh, distinction between hard and soft determinism, so I would like mm. to hear just a a quick explanation of the distinction between soft determinism and compatibilism, if there's a line between there somewhere. But the the main thing uh, that I'm interested in, and um, I guess I want to understand what the, the panelists feel about the relationship between uh, natural or inborn preferences or uh, tendencies and free will. Does would would either of you say, uh, I guess especially the one uh, that's representing the Armenian side, would you say that the existence of natural tendencies toward one thing or another is contrary to free will or compatible with it? And is it a would it be, in your view, a violation of a person's free will if God were to change a person's natural inclinations uh, in order to lead them along a path that he had chosen for them and then maybe act differently in with respect to another person like how does that relate to your view on uh what human free will is so real That's quick question. Be- before david jumps in and answers john it sounded like you had two questions one about determinism and compatibilism um and then one about free will for david is that is that right or 
did I misunderstand? Well, I, I felt like those questions were kind of related sure. to, the, to one another. Sure. But, yeah. Okay. Um, Mike, you've been quiet, man, this entire time. Sorry about that, brother. Uh, you, you know how live things go, especially with Robert calling in. No um, but go ahead and uh, you understand what John's trying to say? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, go ahead and uh, answer his question. And then, David, um, after Mike's done, uh, I'll let you have at it. Okay. Yeah. Well, anytime we're talking about hard determinism, uh, what we're talking about is almost a, is, is basically a fatalistic system. Certainly, you wouldn't picture with hard determinism a loving God who, as Abraham says, uh, shall he not do what is right. Uh, so basically, you're talking almost about just some sort of fate that has no intelligence behind it. There's no avoiding it. It's what's going to happen. It's hard determinism. Everything is determined. There's, there's, there's no sense of freedom uh, that can possibly exist there. Uh, when you talk about soft determinism, we're talking about, uh, especially the Calvinist view, for instance, the Christian view, a God who decrees whatsoever shall come to pass in time, but in such a way, because he's God and he's able, that the freedom of man remains intact, uh, that man still has liberty. He just doesn't have the liberty to defy uh, what the Lord has decreed, but he does have the freedom to follow the desires of his heart. And I think a real and, and and here's the thing that I, that leads me to Calvinist compatibilism, and that is that in Scripture most of the time we're not given we're not given an explanation for choices. We just see people making choices, and that's that. The very few times in Scripture that we actually get a peek behind the curtain and get to look at things from God's perspective when it comes to man's choices, every single time we get one of those examples, uh, it verifies Calvinist compatibilism. The best example I can think of would be Isaiah 10. Here we're told that the Lord is preparing to, 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 to pass his judgment against Israel. And so in doing that, he uses the Assyrians to attack Israel, to invade and, and to plunder, because that's the judgment he's pronounced on them. But then after, after Assyria, who can do no other, he describes them as the, as the axe in his hand. They're his, tool, they're his rod of justice. After they do this and attack Israel and plunder Israel, even though they could do no other, the Lord sets out to punish them. Why? If he's decreed that they will do it, how can he justly punish them? And that's where compatibilism comes in. We see that the Assyrians, especially the king of Assyria, didn't view themselves as the instrument of the Lord. They invaded Israel for their own selfish purposes. So even though they were doing what God had decreed, even though they were doing God's will, they were doing so out of the wicked desires of their own heart, their own selfish uh, purposes. And this was sinful, and for those sinful acts, the Lord punished them. So this is a good example of soft determinism, and that is where God decrees what will come to pass, but he does so in such a way that man's liberty remains intact. Man can do what he desires to do, uh, but he cannot do, uh, he cannot do that which, uh, which uh, violates the, the eternal decree of God. And I would say, I don't know if the next part of the question was totally for David, but I do want to throw this in. As far as the nature goes, I would say that the nature of man, I believe David would agree with this, but I want to get this in. And that is that prior to, to, to uh, being given a new heart, David may not agree with that part. But anyhow, in the fallen state, in man's natural state, he's unable to please God. Uh, he is totally depraved. And so even though he may do some things that we view in, a human, in humanly terms as good, he cannot do anything pleasing to God, and he'll never seek to please God in a sincere way uh, uh, before God moves uh, in his life. And uh, saying that, I guess I would turn it over to David. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, first, this is the issue of a distinction between uh, hard determinism and soft determinism. I-, I would say determinism as a whole is different than fatalism. So fatalism, I think, would be the view that yep. even God himself would not be able to uh, do otherwise. And I think mm-hmm. most Calvinists Sorry, would not take that. Sorry, can I jump in and clarify? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I think I may have misspoken earlier when I asked about a distinction between hard and soft determinism. I meant to say hard and soft libertarianism because I think I heard you, David, mention that I do know the difference between hard and soft determinism, but I had not heard of a distinction between hard and soft libertarianism. So hmm. I misspoke. What I really was asking is what's the difference between soft libertarianism and compatibilism? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's actually some debate about it because you've got the full spectrum there. And so, like, how close can the two come? Uh, but my view would be that uh, on, on a soft form of libertarianism, obviously, we would still acknowledge that there are influences. We would acknowledge that there are times where uh, we don't have libertarian free will. So, for example, uh, if I was falling off a cliff, I don't have the freedom to not fall off that cliff. So uh, there, there are times where we don't have uh, free will. We don't have total free will over everything because we have, uh, you mentioned, inborn desires and such. Uh, And so those are real. Where I think the difference comes, though, is that you can limit that range of possible choices as much as you want. But as long as, you know, as long as there's more than one, then uh, you would still have libertarian free will, uh, you know, and that would be soft libertarianism. When it comes to compatibilism is you can't do otherwise. You can't do other than what you do because your your uh, actions are completely determined by your desires, which are in turn uh, uh, determined by other things. I hope that answers that part of the question. Uh, and then no. as far as far as us having uh, these sorts of desires, that are uh, inborn. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We have those. And I think that they actually control what we do a lot more than we would like to uh, even admit. But uh, to say that those that that's total and complete control, at first, I don't think that's compatible with scripture. Uh, and I think there are some problems with that. So I, I don't think that um, we're completely slaves, if you will, to those desires. So, uh, you know, we can choose to act in accord with them, but we also have the freedom not to. And uh, as far as far as if it's a violation of our free will for God to uh, change that, uh, I would say no. In, in on my view, at least, if this is a specific reference to salvation, because uh, I believe that a person actually, you know, they they you know, they they exercise faith, and so in exercising faith. Uh, there, there's a knowledge that there will be differences there, even if you don't know the full extent of what those may be. Uh, and so it's something that you, you know, want at that point. And so in that case, it's no more a violation of free will than, you know, the sort of changes that would happen, uh, you know, say when uh, when two people get married, right? Uh, so if that answers it from my perspective. I hope that makes sense. Let me ask you a question, David, real quick. Um, said, no, we don't have any more callers, do we? Okay, David, let me ask you a question. Um, do you believe that whenever we, I mean, we all preach the same gospel, gospel, we tell people all day long, repent and believe in Christ. Do you think that that action, some say it's, a, you know, two sides of the same coin, um, you know, h- however you want to view repentance and faith as two actions or one action or however you want to look at it. Do you think that that action starts with a desire um, fr- from the heart as the Bible, if we want to use biblical language? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that. 
Okay, so I Michael brought up Ezekiel 36 a while ago, and I just want to, first of all, we've got 15 minutes left um, until the top of the hour, and I am fine with continuing. Uh, Noah said he's fine with continuing until 9. Michael, David, what do you guys want to do? Do you have to go at 8, or can we continue until 9? In all honesty, I would prefer to go at 8 if that's, okay. if that's acceptable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me make this quick then real quick. Uh, I think I may need to uh, go to. I'd rather stay around, but I do okay. have a few responsibilities around the house. It would probably be a lot more fair to my wife if uh, I went ahead and went <laughs> at 8 as well. That is Christ-likeness right there, brother. Serve your wife. She is the she. She's number one uh, in your life, dude. You know what I mean. So uh, I'm right she's there with sovereign. You. Yeah, exactly. She is sovereign. Um, so let me make this quick. Then Ezekiel 36 specifically says that we will God's people will get a new heart. God will give them a new heart, and then they will obey Him. Right. And I believe, obviously, obedience starts at the very get go with repentance and faith in Christ. So my question is, if desires affect our decisions, if not determine some of them, right? Wouldn't we have to have the desire? to please God, to obey God, to do all of these things before we actually place our faith in Christ. And if that's true, like Jesus said in John, I believe, that you know, evil actions stem from an evil heart, evil or, or good actions uh, stem from a good heart. So wouldn't that good action require a new heart? And especially since that is part of the new covenant promise, a new heart, for a new spirit, forgiveness of sins, wouldn't that technically have to play take place first especially since you believe in a cause and effect reality that we live in does that make sense i mean when i say that we live in a cause and effect reality i mean that that applies to you know physical things but i would believe in agent causation so i would say that we ourselves um in terms of our actions are not thoroughly deterministic uh that sounds like that's a, a more metaphysical way of asking does regeneration precede faith would would that be right yeah, yeah, pretty much. The re- it, regeneration precinct thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would disagree with that just on, on basic uh, exegetical grounds that I think that that is not possible. But um, uh, as far as the question of, you know, do we, because so I, even in, in assuming that Ezekiel there is describing um, regeneration, and I, I, as you know, I'm not <laughs> anything like convinced that it is. But uh, if we were to take the view that it was, uh, nothing in there would say that this has to happen prior to faith. Uh, we do have change in desires um, in a, at regeneration. But and I want to be careful how I say this, because um, th- there's kind of like first order and second order desires, right? So mm-hmm. there's a way you can want to do something that you don't want to do, if that makes sense. Uh, so for example, uh, somebody struggling with sin, right? They may want to stop sinning, but they also want to sin, right? So uh, kind of an analogous way, we can want to obey God, even if we don't, you know, have the kinds of desires that we would need to have in order to do that. But we can want to have those desires. And so I would say that uh, that is uh, our choice to believe on Christ. Uh, You know, we want to have the kind of desires that would be necessary to follow him. And then he will respond to that faith in uh, by regenerating us, giving us eternal life and giving us those desires so that we can uh, follow him as we should. Michael, how would you uh, respond to the question I asked David? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I was uh, 
the middle of sending a message. Uh, would you oh. kind of repeat the question for me again, Tyler, so I know exactly how you phrased it? Yeah, let me let me just actually read Ezekiel 36 and what I'm talking about. He says this, he says, <clears throat> uh, I will magnify my great name that has been profaned, starting in verse 23. I will magnify my great name that has been profaned among the nations, that you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I magnify myself among you in their sight. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all their countries. Then I will bring you to your land. I will sprinkle you with pure water, and you will be clean from all your impurities. I will purify you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the stone or the heart of stone from your body and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will take now this is important. I will take the initiative and you will obey my statutes and carefully observe my regulations. Now we know that believing in Christ, trusting Christ is a commandment from God. My question was if if uh, actions stem from desires, such as believing in Christ, sh wouldn't we technically have to have a new heart? Since actions, good or bad, stem from the heart, wouldn't we have to have a new heart, a good heart, in order to do the things that please God, such as Paul says in Romans chapter, or in Romans? Does that make sense, Michael, or do you want me to kind of rephrase it? No, yeah, it makes perfect sense, and uh, I would agree with you uh, wholeheartedly. I think Paul does make the point clear, we that are in the flesh cannot please God. And I think, and obviously being in the flesh in that sense is being a natural man. Uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to us. Uh, you know, uh, to those that are perishing, it's foolishness, and, and we're unable uh, to receive the things of God. Uh, and so, yeah, I think obviously... Uh, I, I, you, I don't see how you could take someone in that state, in that nature. Uh, we know that the uh, Scripture mentions God giving and granting repentance, so I don't see how you could take someone from that state, that totally depraved state, uh, and, and and have them to, to exercise faith or do anything pleasing to God uh, from that state. I, I know David would, would submit perhaps some prevenient grace, but I would my question would be what nature would they have then? What state would they be in upon receiving prevenient grace if it doesn't come with the, the gospel call because Christ said, uh, you know, a good tree produces good fruit, a uh, bad tree produces bad fruit. But if you are if you have some sort of prevenient grace that you can, you're almost in a neutral position, I don't think there's, uh, I mean, I can understand someone maybe believing that idea if they have someone explain it to them uh, systematically from a systematic theology standpoint, but I don't think from Scripture that's a very organic view at all. Now, if we get back to Isaiah here, which you just covered, it seems obvious to me, and again, this is, I think, where we had some uh, a, a disconnect, David and I, about uh, the golden chain of redemption in Romans 29 and 30. When we see actions of God, uh, these are things that God's saying, I do. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Right? Like this is, and especially if you believe that you can fall away and lose salvation, uh, it seems to me that uh, what he's saying here is, no, I will keep you. And I think that ties back to. Uh, uh, well, Jeremiah thirty-two forty, for instance, uh, and and as far as do we know that this is talking about New Testament believers? I think a good rule of thumb uh, when we read uh, anything in the prophets is, have we seen anything like this actually come to pass? And I don't think we have. I don't think there was ever a point where Israel uh, fulfilled this. And he doesn't seem to be talking about some small group somewhere, but he's talking about what he's calling his people and what he will do for them. So I don't think that there's really. Uh, a very good exegetical argument against this 
referring to New Testament believers and indeed presenting just that position that uh, uh, that you brought up, Tyler. I think that, uh, yeah, I would agree with you wholeheartedly there. You're, you're, we're reading here acts that the Lord is doing. So as far as faith, being, faith not being mentioned as a condition, I feel like we sometimes do that where it could be this or it could be that. But if we go just from the text, uh, I would agree with what you, with your uh, what you said there. I think that you really hit it on the head. Yeah, I and you know, I mean, I don't want to just isolate one text from the scripture and say, you know, this is how it is. But if I was to go to any text to show someone that you have got to have a, a, a new heart first, right? It would be this text because I think, and, and I think it can be debated that you know this text is is explicit about the new covenant. Um, Jesus quoted or, or Jesus alluded to this in John. Uh, chapter three, whenever he's talking to Nicodemus, but but it, I hate it that we <laughs> that we're running out of time. Um, we've only got about seven minutes left, so for those of you tuning in, just now tuning in, uh, we're 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 running, we're wrapping it up uh, right now. But you can go back and check this out at www.completecenters.com. This was an amazing discussion. I think that I I, I don't think that it was the normal um, debate between Calvinists and Arminius or Arminians. And and that's exactly what I was going for. But in the last seven minutes that we got, six, Michael, David, if you guys could ask each other one question that would that would do it, that that would end this debate. If there was a question, what would it be, uh, Michael? I want to since you started this whole thing out, um, go ahead and ask David, and then r- try to keep it, you know, thirty seconds, you know, asking, and you know, a minute or two to respond. I know that's. That's a you know short and a lot to ask to to end this debate on. But um, what what would that question be, uh, Michael? If you want to ask David, and then David, you can ask Michael afterwards. Uh, right. Uh, I would say for me, I've heard a few different uh, sort of explanations about prevenient grace, and I um, so I, and I'm assuming that that David holds to a prevenient grace uh, view. Uh, so I would just ask David, what exactly prevenient grace means to him? Uh, what does it look like in operation? What exactly does it do? What effect does it have on, on man? Uh, so, yeah, that would be my question for him on that. So what exactly is prevenient grace? Am I supposed to answer that, or am I just responding with my question? No, yeah, 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 answer it, if you would. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously Arminians have had a few different ways of looking at that. But for me, uh, it, it comes, I think, a lot from my own experience is that it's uh, being made aware of the gospel because I, I was raised in a pastor's home, so I knew the gospel. But at the time that I believed, uh, I came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I, I would just say illumination is probably the best way I can describe it. And, and interestingly enough, that's kind of how John 1, 9 describes Jesus as the true light who enlightens everyone. It uh, makes it real to you in uh, a the best way I could describe it is in in a real way so in a way that you are able to believe this as real and it's not just information mm, okay okay um, David what would be the question that you would have for Michael where do you see uh, evidence that uh, election is unconditional Yeah, uh, I think there's several places. I think I would start, again, as I did in my opening statement, with the nature of God. Uh, back to the discussion you and I had about the golden chain of redemption in Romans 29 and 30. It's the way God speaks. I will foreknow those people, and we can't. We don't have time to get into foreknowledge, but you and I have discussed that. Uh, 
I predestined them, right? And I uh, justify, I glorify. And, and, and so we know that he does the calling. He does the, and, and I would correlate that with John 6, that, that all that the Father gives do come to Christ. All of them do come, and they're all raised up to eternal life. And so knowing the nature of God and the operation of salvation that seems to be explained to me in primary salvation texts, it just seems that, that to make perfect sense. Uh, there's not a meritocracy. There's not something we have to do. There's nothing we need to do to keep salvation. We will do those things naturally because of a new heart. But it just seems that God's in total control and that he's calling the people for his purpose, for his own glory. Uh, and it just seems that to be a little clunky uh, to look at it in any other way. Uh, it seems every time he mentions salvation, he talks about being there from start to finish. Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, he mediates perfectly for us after his perfect sacrifice. Amen, dude. Noah, um, you wanted to say something real quick. Well, I just uh, we got one guy left, and we got a couple minutes left in the hour. Can we take a take one more call? Yeah, I mean, I'm fine with that. Is that cool with you guys? Last call. Sure. Finney okay. joins us. Hey, Finney, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks everyone. Uh, really hey. appreciate you squeezing me in the last three minutes. Yes. What's up, man? Uh, so I had a question about compatibilism. I, I, I appreciate that somebody brought up hierarchical compatibilism, the difference between first and order desires. I, I recall Harry Frankfurt using that distinction. My, my, my question is for anyone who subscribes to a compatibilistic view of freedom is, do you believe that a compatibilistic version of freedom is necessary to be held morally responsible for any given action? Um, and if you do, how do you square that with um, federal headship theology, mm. according to which infants would be morally held held morally responsible for the sin of Adam? Mm. That's an interesting question, Michael. Uh, well, firstly, when it comes to infants, I would say that I think really good arguments have been made, for instance, by John MacArthur uh, from Calvinist's standpoint that that would indicate that infants do, in fact, uh, receive. Uh, a special dispensation of grace, if you will, uh, because I think it would be absurd to to assert that uh, an infant is going to stand before God and answer for his sins or the sins of Adam. Uh, as far as compatibilism itself, uh, is that necessary? I think that some kind of freedom for man would be necessary uh, in order for him to be held accountable. Uh, I think that's just uh, the only logical way to look at that. If we're talking about hard determinism and you literally are not doing what you desire to do, then you really actually are not choosing anything, and I don't see how that we could... Uh, logically uphold that right so then it seems on your view you don't hold the federal headship theology then right the idea that people are imputed guilt from from the moment they're born oh absolutely i do but we also have sin uh that we're committing as well so so even though we're all guilty in adam we're actually still uh committing sins that that we're responsible for in real time uh oh, so, so then you do believe that infants are born morally held held morally responsible absolutely or the sin of that. I, I do believe that infants bear the guilt sorry to interrupt you there uh, i do believe that infants bear the guilt of adam everyone does and i think scripture is clear on that but i don't think that there uh there's some sadomasochistic uh action taken against them uh because we do know that some even scripture tells us that some of the 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 uh justice that people receive will be based on uh, what they did with the knowledge they had and again, I would go to look at what John MacArthur says. I think there's good arguments for a special type of grace uh, for infants and children. Mm, yeah, yeah I mean, very. Um, like to me, that Mark. Yeah. 
uh, go ahead real quick, uh, Finney, and then we uh, have oh, to wrap yeah. up here in just a second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it seems like on, on MacArthur's view, there's an age of accountability, um, and before you reach that age, you're actually innocent. You're not. I'm, I'm not. I, I I would have to double check if he actually holds to holds to imputed guilt, because if you view if you believe that infants are born morally held held morally responsible for the sin of Adam, even though they don't have the freedom or ability, even on a compatibilistic view, um, to prevent Adam from doing what he did, you know, thousands of years ago. It seems it to me compatibilism seems incompatible with that particular conception of original sin i guess is what i'm saying right um yeah i I guess i can respect your view on that but i I would just tend to disagree i think as a calvinist macarthur's been pretty firm in that he would never question that all men are guilty in adam uh but he does bring up that in uh, jeremiah i think it is the lord actually refers to infants as innocent because there is a sense in which we just have to look at things logically we're in time the lord has created us in time so we can't uh, abandon reason or logic. And so, again, uh, knowledge does have something to do with uh, with the justice that we receive. And so uh, I, I do believe that uh, MacArthur holds to a pretty pretty standard uh, view of uh, federal headship and the uh, blood guilt of everyone in Adam's sin. But, again, I would, uh, I'll even take a closer look at what he says, too. But I don't see that that's, that's a problem at all. Yeah, I mean, just to jump in just real quick, and then we'll give final words to um, both the the participants. Uh, Finney, thank you for your uh, question. I think the Bible um, makes two two distinctions. Two, it compares two people. Um, one people is in Adam, and the other people are in Christ. And, and there's no third option. You're either in Adam or in Christ. And from my understanding, men and women are born in Adam. Adam represents, since he was the covenant head or federal head, of the covenant in the beginning that brought sin into the world, brought sin into the earth, all those things, um, since he represented all of humankind, since he failed in Adam, all else are, have fell, fallen, um, are held responsible for Adam's sin. The reason that is, in my opinion, is that how in the world could we be held righteous on Christ's account if we're not held guilty on Adam's? The two, do, the two doesn't seem to, you know... Um, Inter, they they don't seem to they're not compatible it doesn't seem if one is false and the other is true um so yes it does sound horrible i guess in some eyes that are, are to to some people to say yeah well i'm being held responsible for something i didn't do but i would have to ask the person right but you're justified by something you didn't do is because of what Christ did. Um, now there's a debate on you know whether the blood is applied you know through belief and and all these things. Do we apply the blood? Does God apply the blood? But the fact of the matter remains is that the Bible mentions two groups of people: one in Adam and one in Christ. And and according to I think all of us, we are not in Christ until we believe. Um, Michael, would you agree with that? In 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 these final moments, and then David, I'll let you have it after that. Uh, absolutely. In his sovereignty, uh, by the counsel of his own will, God has chosen to place us in time, and so many things transpire in time, and we are not in Christ until we, we, we believe uh, by grace through faith. Yeah, that's absolutely right. All right. Uh, David, uh, in those last moments, man, um, do you have anything um, just off the top that you would like to say? Um, man, I, I, I appreciate you coming on, doing this, bro. I, I know you're a busy man. And um, where, just let people know where they can find you if they want to hear more about what you got to say. And um, 
yeah, and then we'll take it over to Mike on that same uh, thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, on that particular issue, uh, no, I know I discussed this with Finney a little bit, and I think it's an interesting case uh, he's making there. Uh, yeah, I mean, people can find uh, my, my arguments for Arminianism, uh, my YouTube channel, Faith Because of Reason. I just do uh, video essays kind of where I, I make the case there. And uh, yeah, I think that's all there is to say. Right on. Mike? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, like you said, I'm on Facebook there at Michael Chandler Keaton. I'm kind of kind of waiting to uh, complete my master's degree at least before I try to, you know, really go public with a YouTube channel or any sort of uh, ministry or uh, anything like that. But you know, I'm always there on Facebook, uh, public public uh, profile. So Michael Chandler Keaton, uh, if anybody ever wants to contact me or uh, dialogue with me. Right on. And and check this out, too, for those who are still listening, who are still with us. If you want to hear a topic discussed on the Complete Center's Guide, hopefully we can be live on the radio a little bit more uh, like we did tonight. I thought it was fun. I thought it was great. Um, you can go to my website, www.completecenters.com. Um, if you want, like I said, if you want to be a, be a guest on the show or if you have a topic you want us to discuss, um, send me an email at completecenter at gmail.com. Uh, that's completecenter at gmail.com. Thank you guys uh, so much for tuning in. Uh, Noah, take us out of here, brother. Hey, man, thanks a lot for everybody that joined us. Uh, we'll be back next week. Again, you can find the entire back catalog of the Complete Centers Guide by going to completecenters.com. We'll see you next time.